Well, it's great to be back up here to preach before you this morning after five weeks of uh, being away. If you don't know, the elders of the church graciously give me a month every summer to work on a writing project. Uh, and so I've been working on a little thing on First and Second Samuel, which will release sometime in 2018. I'm so thankful for that, but also eager and itching to get back uh, to preaching through the book of Acts with you. Many thanks, of course, to Asher for pinch hitting these past five weeks. Uh, he was in town for about no less than two weeks, a new town, a new city, a new job, uh, a new place to live, and we threw him into the deep end with uh, five weeks of preaching through the book of Acts, and we're thankful for it. Of course, we'll just keep marching through this great book, and so today we come to Acts chapter 11. If you would turn there, Acts chapter 11. Let me start reading. We'll read verses 1 to 18. We left off with the conversion of Cornelius and his household in chapter 10. The Holy Spirit came, they were baptized, and Peter remained with them at their house for some days, it says. Now, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you're probably having a bit of deja vu experience right now. You're right. Acts chapter 11 records for us a story in about a dozen verses or so which occupied the whole of chapter 10. It is a retelling just to review, just to briefly, even though we get the same story in Acts 11, here it is in Acts 10, not much different, just longer. 
Acts 10 tells the story of the salvation of Cornelius, a Gentile, that is, a non-Jew. We saw last week how God orchestrated the messenger and the meeting of these two men to hear the message of salvation, and the Gentile household was saved. At first, Peter wasn't quite down with this idea. He did a bit of head-scratching throughout the chapter, but in the end, he preached. The gospel was spread. The Holy Spirit came, and Peter remained there for a bit of time. That's the end of chapter 10. Now, in our passage today, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, it's in our Bibles in part because it's what happened next. After staying with Cornelius for some time, Peter went back to Jerusalem only to find some bit of controversy. He had some explaining to do. And so in chapter 11, which we just read, Peter explains to those concerned what happened, how God was behind it, how God did it. The Jerusalem saints get on board, and that's it. How about that? I summarized two sermons in about the shortest time I've ever summarized any sermons or any passages. It's here in our Bible, chapter 11, because it's what happened next, in part. But remember, Acts tells us selective history. It's not just what happened next. Not everything that can be told is told in the book of Acts. What's there is all very purposeful. The stories that get told, how long they take, the amount of detail that goes into them, whether there's circling back and reviewing something, we should be asking ourselves why when we come to these oddities. Why this story? Why here? Why again? Why in this order? Why so long? From chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, 18, 66 verses in all, you really have one story what we might call the Cornelius moment and its effects. This is the longest story in the book of Acts. So why so long? Why so much detail? Why review what's already been covered? Well, I think the length in repetition here indicates that this is massively important, that this is momentous in the plan of God. And I think it also stresses for us the difficulty of the moment, the controversy of what it teaches, the radical significance of this point in time. Remember from last week, Peter was shocked when in that vision he saw unclean animals and the command to kill and eat. He was shocked. It took a while for him to get it. And we see this week, many in the Jerusalem church were shocked with Peter's conclusion of what God was doing and how it related to Gentiles. So because the Bible doubles back on this scene, so we will too as well today. Uh, that will mean, no doubt, some overlap with what we saw and what we learned from last week. Asher did a fine job of leading us through the details and the contours of that long story of chapter 10. But another pass over the same kind of story uh, that will allow us to, I think get deeper into theological, biblical, historical background on some of these matters, to consider the broader issues at play in the plan of God, to anticipate some questions that maybe even longtime Christians would have about a passage like this. Like, what is the difference between Jews and Gentiles before the Cornelius moment? 
Why did God give food laws in the first place? What are they for? Or how do we categorize Cornelius' spiritual state before Acts 10 and Peter's sermon? What changed, if anything, in the plan of God and for the people of God at this Cornelius moment? We'll pause here and there throughout this morning's message to ask and try to answer some of those questions. So let's get on with it. Our passage starts with what I'd call a reasonable concern. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. The concern, of course, is with Peter eating with and staying with and hence fully accepting Gentiles. And I want to propose to you that that is a reasonable concern. It's not a legitimate concern in the long run, but it's a reasonable concern in the moment. The issues at play are twofold. Food and people. You see, verse 3, he ate with uncircumcised, that's non-Jewish, people. As Asher said last week, food and people, or food and fellowship, are inextricably linked in the Old Testament. But it takes a bit of thinking and digging, especially for us today, for us to get our arms around it and understand why this might have been a reasonable concern. It's hard for us who most of us in this room are not Jewish, we didn't grow up Jewish, or following Mosaic law, Old Testament law. And so we might just scratch our heads and wonder what's the big deal and why can't Peter eat with whomever he wants to and is this just racism and elitism? But here's the background that we need to know. In the Old Testament, God was setting apart a people for himself for their salvation, for his glory, and to use them eventually as an instrument to get God's glory and worship out to the world. But before they would ever be used to bless anyone, they would first need to be cleansed. They would need to be set apart. And so God set them apart in their own land and set them apart with their own rules, Sabbaths, feasts, calendar, all that, they were sinful like the rest of the world, but God was setting them apart, making them distinct, and cleansing them. And so the need for cleansing and the possibility of cleansing kept being preached to them or illustrated to them through some seemingly odd, seemingly arbitrary rules where God distinguished between certain things that be clean and certain things that are unclean. If you would, turn back to Leviticus chapter 20. It's the third book of our Bibles. Turn to Leviticus. Let's see it for ourselves. Most of us are not in Leviticus too often, unless we're reading through the book of the, the Bible, maybe in a year or something. Leviticus 20 shows us this, these, these issues of people and food in the history of Israel. Leviticus 20, see verse 22, God says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. That is that you don't get ejected. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things that I'm commanding you not to do. And therefore I detested them. But I've said to you, 
You shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God was separating a people for himself distinguishing them from the world around them by distinguishing for them certain things that would be clean and unclean. If you back up in Leviticus, in fact, just do so if you would, just thumb back to Leviticus 11. You can just see some headings in your Bible or notice some of the language even if I don't read it. Leviticus 11 is where we find those foods, those animals which would be considered clean and which would be considered unclean. I'll explain why this is in God's plan later on. But that's our our key category. But that's not the only category of clean and unclean. Leviticus 13 talks about certain diseases like leprosy, which would make one unclean. Chapter 14, houses could be categorized as clean or unclean. Chapter 15, certain bodily discharges were considered unclean. In chapter 17, we see you can't eat blood. That makes you unclean, so there are certain ways to kill an animal and remain clean. Now look specifically at chapter 17, verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Notice that phrase, strangers who sojourn among them. Tuck that away. This is not a wild goose chase, by the way. This is going somewhere. Look at chapter 18, verse 24. Here, after God lists certain sexual prohibitions, certain sexual perversions, 18, verse 24 says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. Verse 26, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, and so the land became unclean. A few other times in Leviticus we find that phrase, strangers who sojourn among you. Who are these curious people? Well, they're non-Jews, you might expect, but it's not a passerby. It's not someone who's, who's just coming by and staying for a while and soaking up some hospitality and moving on. No, they sojourn among you. Israel was a sojourning nation. These are people who traveled with Israel. It's a foreigner who has hitched himself or herself to Israel and its God in no small or insignificant way. Notice that the rules that apply to Israel also apply to such a stranger. Notice that the threats that would apply to an unclean Israelite also apply to this so-called stranger. So, 
Are the Gentiles welcome at the Jewish dinner table? Yes. If they go all in, if they jump on board fully, if they buy into the rules and the threats. Otherwise, no. If not, they're unclean. And their, their tent is unclean. And, and their habits are unclean. And, and their food is unclean. And then if you're around them, you're unclean. But again, I want to stress, it was possible for Gentiles to, to, to buy in wholesale in the Old Testament. Several did. Rahab and Ruth and Uriah the Hittite are all examples of Gentiles who, who bought in. It's what later would be called a proselyte. What Leviticus calls a stranger who sojourns among you would later be called a proselyte. That's a, a Gentile who becomes Jewish. In these three ways, if it's a man, he's circumcised. Then he's baptized and then he commits to all of the Old Testament law. The, the food laws, the, the, the Sabbaths, the sacrifices. Now proselytes have already been mentioned in the book of Acts. Turn back to Acts now. As we begin to make our way back to Acts and where we were in Acts 11. Stop on the way at Acts 2 verse 11. Who was there in Jerusalem when Peter preached that fateful sermon, Acts 2.11 says both Jews and proselytes. There's our word, Cretans and Arabians. In other words, Gentiles from Crete and Arabia who have now fully identified with Israel's God and Israel's faith. In chapter 6, verse 5, we're told that one of the seven servants, Nicholas, is a proselyte from Antioch. Now, you might be wondering at this point, so does this mean Cornelius was a proselyte? Is that where this is going? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. We're told in chapter 10, verse 2, he's an Italian. He's a, a devout man who feared God. God-fearer, literally. Chapter 10, verse 22, we're told again, he's a God-fearing man. A God-fearer. By this time in the first century, God-fearer was a semi-technical term. It meant a Gentile who had come to believe that the true God is the God of Israel. And then they identified with that God and that faith selectively. Not all the way. No circumcision. Maybe not the food laws. They, they, they thought, yeah, that's the true God. I'm not going to get in wholesale. I'm certainly not going to start with circumcision. That, that's going to be a detour, a deterrent. Uh, but Cornelius was that kind of guy. He was good. He was moral. He prayed to Israel's God. But he wasn't a proselyte. He was a God-fearer. And therefore, Cornelius was unclean according to Old Covenant law. And his house would have been considered unclean. And so where you sat in that house was unclean. And what you were fed in that house would be unclean. Unless God gives some new information. 
You see, Peter's strong resistance in chapter 10 to eat of those unclean foods was because some of those animals were listed in Leviticus 11 and he avoided them his whole life. And of course, the concern had by some back in Jerusalem in chapter 11 was reasonable based on Leviticus. Now look at chapter 11, verse 2. Who was it? That was criticizing Peter for eating with Gentiles. The ESV says the circumcision party, which, by the way, sounds like the very worst party of all. (laughs) It sounds like a a Mel Brooks movie that didn't get made, right? (laughs) Ask someone older than me who Mel Brooks is, and they'll tell you. No, it wasn't a party in that sense, and it wasn't even really a party like a group of people of a certain mindset like the Republican Party or Democrat Party. In the Greek, it just says the circumcised ones. It doesn't say party. I'm not sure why the ESV puts it there. It's the only translation I could find in English that uses circumcised party. Now, later on, there will be a circumcised party. There'll be so-called Christians who obsess about Gentiles being circumcised in order to become Christians. But this doesn't say that. This just says, basically, some Jewish guys. They may or may not have a more strict, more rigid view of the law than the Bible does, at least regarding the Old Testament. It may just simply be that they have Leviticus in mind and no new information, and they're concerned about Peter's Gentile sleepover. And maybe even more details than that have traveled back to Jerusalem and beat Peter there. Perhaps they've heard Peter not only ate pork, he loves pork. I saw him with a bag of pork rinds for crying out loud. It's most likely that any concern about Peter and the pork is a concern for God's Old Testament law. It's a reasonable concern unless God reveals something new, and he did. So secondly, we come to a significant change. Acts 10 and 11 marks a significant change. Now, let's not forget that this significant change was foretold and foreshadowed all over the Bible, including the Old Testament. And in hindsight, we can look back and and see it all much more clearly than they could see it in various moments and stages. So we can look back to the Old Testament prophets who foresaw a day when the nations, when all the earth would come to God and God would pull them to himself in worship. Isaiah 43 and 44 and 49 and Isaiah 66. Go read those. The promises are glorious and grand and global. Well, Acts 10 is now a massive step toward that. It may be the most gigantic step towards the fulfillment of those promises that has ever come before. Of course, in Jesus' ministry, he Gave the gospel to Gentiles, that's true, that's good. But it was a foreshadow of what was to come later on. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He he touched lepers, he touched dead people, and he didn't become unclean. Why? Well, it wasn't because things had changed just yet. It's because he's very unique. 
He has power and purity that is unparalleled. And so when he touches uncleanness, the uncleanness doesn't go to him. The cleanness of him goes to the one who's unclean, and he makes them clean. That's a, a picture of what's to come. But it was a time of transition. Remember, Jesus said in his final words, in the gospel accounts at the beginning of Acts, make disciples of all nations. You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, he said. Well, Acts 10 was starting to show that. It's been progressive. The gospel has been spreading in the book of Acts numerically and geographically and ethnically. And now we might even say theologically. There's one thing more left that's needed for the gospel to penetrate the ends of the earth. Jesus said that his disciples would be witnesses in the world he didn't exactly say how the nations, though, would come in. He, he didn't get specific on that front. Jesus was never explicit about how the Gentiles would come in to be God's people, simply that they would. He never explicitly said that the nations would come in bare bones, without any additional steps for them, as had been the case for 1,500 years before. Isn't that incredible? 1,500 years of divine theological history setting this precedent. You, you can imagine the concern of those in Jerusalem to hear Peter just playing loose with the Old Testament laws. They didn't know. They didn't know. They couldn't have known. But what was happening in Acts 10 was this radical new step in God's plan where Gentiles just walk in. No circumcision. They just walk in. The categories of clean and unclean are gone. The table is clean. The food is good. God told Peter in the vision, what God has made clean, do not call common. It's repeated again when Paul reviews it, or when Peter reviews it in chapter 11. What God has made clean. He made it clean. It didn't used to be clean according to his rules and his plan. It was unclean for a time, but now it is clean. And that relates both to food and to people, as Asher made really clear last Sunday. The vision was about food, but Peter saw an appropriate application as it related to people. God was making them clean. So who can come into the family of God? What does it take for them to come into the family of God? What are the rules inside the family of God? All these things were being changed with the Cornelius moment. Just think of that imagery of shadow. A shadow. The New Testament refers to the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system as a shadow. Picture yourself inside your house. Maybe there's a, a hallway outside your door and you see a shadow of a person. You're thankful that you can see a shadow. You're thankful that shadows exist because it lets you know someone's coming. It might be a burglar. It might be the kids getting up for a, a drink of water. 
But you know something is there. The shadow is useful. The shadow communicates. The shadow is helpful. You pay attention to a shadow in that moment. But then when, let's say, the child appears in the doorway, you're not concerned about the shadow. You don't talk to a shadow. You interact with the substance, with the person. The real thing has come. And so we read in Colossians 2. Listen to this. Let no one, Christian, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. God had a plan for shadows, and that wasn't the permanent plan. The substance has come, and so in Christ, all shadows of the Old Testament fade away. They disappear. But you might ask at this point, so why did God in the first place ever communicate through these shadows? And why for so long? Well, number one, God is a more patient teacher than either you or I would be. He's okay, staying in illustration mode, let's say 1,500 years, right? That's, that's a long sermon, isn't it? An illustration that goes on for that long? Well, God's more patient than you or I would be. And we also know that God seems to like to communicate through symbols, through signs. Even in the New Covenant, we have Lord's Supper and baptism, these signs of the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they had hundreds of these symbols or signs. Take circumcision. Why did God institute circumcision for Israel? Well, it set apart those people as God's very own. It communicated to Israelites that their sons were gods. Even more, it signified the cutting off of the flesh. It, it symbolized the problem, the problem of sinful flesh. Not external flesh, but again, it's a symbol of internal sinful flesh that needs to be excised, cut off and thrown off. It symbolized it. And it also made clear that the outward symbol could never actually be the solution. Circumcision never really fixed anything. And so God from early on began speaking about the need for circumcised hearts. That's what it symbolized. Or how about the food laws? Why did God institute food laws back in Leviticus? Well, again, it set God's people apart. It made them distinct. It was a thrice daily reminder that they were the Lord's and they were to be different from the world around them. They were not their own. It wasn't necessarily healthier. At least that's not the point of the Old Testament food laws. The specific laws symbolized purity and normality. Why did I say normality? Well, you take something like sea creatures that don't have fins and crawl on the ground. That's weird. Yes, God made it. Yes, he intended to make it weird. 
And he made it weird in part for a 1,500-year illustration. Don't be weird. <laughs> Don't make yourself weird. We got we to gotta do what's normal. We got to do what's normal according to God, not according to the world around you. Certain animals would be more dirty than others, like a, a pig. And so that would be off limits. But it was, it was dirty symbolically. It was, it was illustrative of what God was trying to teach his people. Of a universal spiritual problem of uncleanness. There's a lot of uncleanness out there and it's hard to stay clean. There's a need for cleansing and the food laws also taught that it wasn't enough. These food laws were never going to be enough. Like circumcision, it didn't really do anything. So passing on the pork didn't get to the heart of the problem, which is a problem of the heart. So again, let me summarize. The food laws were given by God for a time as an illustration for the problem of uncleanness in the world the need for cleansing for God's people and the ineffectiveness of food laws to get them pure and to keep them pure. It was a shadow. So God wasn't arbitrarily or cruelly giving food laws back in Leviticus 11. And neither was he arbitrarily or whimsically removing the food laws in Acts chapter 10, he wasn't modernizing his outdated religion, slightly embarrassed by, by these food laws that are really out of date. And, you know, maybe God realized he'd get more success if he had a bigger menu for his people. And no, no, no. Leviticus 11 was a shadow of what's to come. And Christ is the substance it taught in a weak way what shadows teach us about real people now if you would look at acts 10 and 11 a little more carefully let's consider this significant change in the moment as it's relayed to us by peter in acts chapter 11 as he summarizes in just a, a dozen verses or so what took you know 48 verses back in chapter 10 one thing we can notice is that this is a significant change orchestrated by God. God is orchestrating this in spectacular detail. Two guys, 30 miles apart, one Jew, one Gentile. God is giving them separate visions. And God is speaking and God is sending. You get these commands, rise and go down. Go here, get this guy, take him. You're going to meet this guy. The timing is impeccable. Back in chapter 10, verse 17, while Peter was perplexed about the vision, there's a knock at the door. Gentiles are here. Isn't that great? There's absolutely no denying that God was doing this, that God was making the change in his plan. God is doing it. It's a significant change with Christ and the gospel at the center. Christ and the gospel are at the center of all this. You see, when Peter got to Cornelius' house, he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. You can find it in chapter 10, verse 34 to 43. It's the gospel in 10 verses. It's the story of Jesus in just a paragraph or so. 
If you don't know how to share the, the gospel with someone, you might want to just memorize chapter 10, verse 34 to 43. Or just know to turn there in your Bibles and know how to talk about it a bit. That's the gospel. It's a significant change with Christ and the gospel at the center. And this is worth stressing because it's misunderstood by some. You see, there are some who see Cornelius as an example of a guy who was saved already before he heard the gospel of Jesus. They point out Cornelius was God-fearing and devout and prayerful, which, yes, that's what Acts 10 and 11 say of Cornelius. And this even before he heard of Jesus, they say. And so they infer from that that the gospel of Jesus doesn't have to be proclaimed and doesn't have to be heard in order for some to be saved. That God only judges us according to the amount of information that we have. And so if all you have is stars and you go, there must be a star maker. Boom, salvation. And yet if you've heard the gospel, then you're accountable to that information and you better not reject it. But that doesn't work according to to good sense of Acts 10 and 11. You see chapter 11, verse 14, as, Paul, as Peter is recounting what happened back in chapter 10, he adds one important detail which wasn't there in chapter 10. 11, 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. In other words, Cornelius needed to be saved. Yes, he believed in the right God. Yes, he prayed to him. And God mercifully heard. But he needed still the message about the one who saves. As Peter said in his sermon to that household back in chapter 10, Jesus commanded us to preach and to testify that he's the one appointed to be judge of all. And to him the prophets bear witness that, here it is, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The forgiveness of sins is in Jesus. You have to know his name. You must believe on his name. And there, there is forgiveness of sins. It's so similar to what Peter said back in chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the point of Acts 10 and 11, the point of this Cornelius moment is to let us know that anyone can come to God now. Anyone can come to God without barriers. Anyone can come to God not by making certain steps toward it, but just coming. But everyone must come through Jesus Anyone can come, everyone must come through Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other source of forgiveness. Jews like Saul had to be saved. Good Gentiles like Cornelius had to be saved. You and I have to be saved. Are you? Are you saved? Have you, have you expressed faith to Jesus Christ about what he did on the cross for sins? This gospel is simply that Jesus came and lived righteously and died as a substitute for those 
who weren't righteous. He gave what we couldn't earn, and he takes the punishment that we deserve. And if we simply believe that, if we simply confess that to him, if we simply acknowledge it and, and, and ask for his mercy on account of what he's done on the cross, he gives it. That's it. No three steps and you're in. That's it. Some have said that faith is like sitting on a chair. You just sit down. That's trust. That's faith. That's resting in him. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Amazing that we can. Amazing that it is so wide open. There's no religion like this. There's no religion out there in the marketplace of ideas that has a negative view as Christianity does about sin and judgment and trouble. The problem is very severe in Christian thinking, but the solution, the answer, the invitation is so gloriously wide open and free. There is nothing like it. There's a significant change taking place in this passage, and it's with undeniable proof that God was behind it. There's proof in the visions, proof in the divine orchestration, but, but the biggest one, there's proof in that the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles in a powerful way. Chapter 11, verse 15, Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? As if Peter could. Who could stand in God's way? God was doing it. Notice that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like Jews did in Acts 2. You see it? Verse 15, Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Verse 17, he fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And then chapter 10, verse 47 says it as well. These people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. The Cornelius moment was Pentecost, part two. It was a Gentile Pentecost. It's familiar on purpose. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon Jews and they spoke in tongues. In Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit came on Samaritans and they spoke in tongues. And now in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes on these Gentiles and they miraculously speak in these praise Tongues. Tongues, by the way, will only happen one more time in the book of Acts. People think of Acts as like the book of tongues. It, it happens four times at key moments. It's unusual and it's very special. With the Jews in chapter 2, with the Samaritans in chapter 8, with Cornelius and his household in chapter 10, and then in chapter 19 it's with Paul as a, a, a verification of his ministry. The point in Acts 10 is full, immediate inclusion of any Gentile who believes. No longer steps to get in. You don't have to become Jewish to become Christian. Straight to baptism with you. No circumcision here. Straight to Jesus. Straight to God. No second-class citizens. 
It's a significant change. God has always been merciful. There's always been forgiveness with him. But there's no denying in Acts 10, dominoes were falling. The barriers were being lifted. God's laws were being changed. And so third, there is an undeniable conclusion in verse 18. When they, that is the concerned Jews... Well, really, probably all who heard Peter's account. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice they were awestruck, they were speechless. What else could be said? The same spirit came on them the same way with the same outward manifestation. God has done this. God is changing things. Who are they to stand in God's way? Who is any of them? Or who is Peter to withhold baptism? God has granted repentance to the Gentiles who believe. Peter was right. The food laws are now bundled up and thrown away. Gentiles are welcome at the table. We can eat pork. That's not the main point of this. But I, every now and then, thank God for Acts 10 when I'm enjoying something delicious that's pork. According to 1 Timothy 4, it's now false teachers who actually require abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Be careful of those who would, would put on God's people extra laws that God has removed. Here, these people, they praised God. They glorified him, it says. They weren't resentful. Notice that. Wait a minute, they can just come in? Wait a minute, it's all flat at the cross? Is that what you're saying? They weren't resentful, they praised God. They weren't aggravated that they had been proven wrong. They weren't reluctant to embrace it. They joined heaven's angels in the joyous celebration of the easy entrance to heaven for Gentiles because of Jesus' blood. Christian, thank God for who he's saving and how he's saving and never tire of it. Keep thanking God for his saving work in those around you and in yourself. Don't think that anyone is too far from God to be saved. According to this passage, anyone can be saved. Saul, murderous Saul, and nice, moral, prayerful Gentile Cornelius. Don't give up on anyone who's still alive. Pray for them. Keep giving them the gospel. I wonder if there's a category of person that secretly you really wish wouldn't get saved. Oh, I know none of us will confess to this. But we can imagine in the South, back 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a white racist really not wishing uh, that black guy 
would get saved and surely not wanting him in his church. We can imagine in the South back then, a, a black really not wanting a white racist to repent and get saved or being really nastily suspicious if that white man said he did. Well, don't think that racism and exclusivism have died out and it's all peaceful now or that Christians don't struggle with these things still. Who would you rather not see join this church or join your community group? A former prostitute? A former drug dealer? A guy who was in a gang and certainly looks the part and all the tattoos to prove it. Maybe a former Muslim. Do you think that God can't save someone out of ISIS? Do you think there's a category? Some that are just too far gone? Let's just, let's just pray they don't hurt us. Let's not pray that God would save them. Really? Are you good with God plopping down in this church a saved former terrorist? You better be or you're going against God. That's what God is up to. Who are you to stand in God's ways? Who is any of us to deny one of these baptism if they truly believe? In the church, there is no discrimination, not based on color, ethnicity, age, economics, or even your past. How do you think you got in? Hmm? Well, you got in because you're American. You got in because uh, your parents were religious. No, no, no. You were lost. You had no hope. You were without God. And God intervened and saved you. Praise God for it. We need to reflect often. What if God had not what if he had not stepped in for me? What if? What if there was no new covenant? What if there was no giant welcome mat for the world? What hope would I have? Well, here, Ephesians 2, as we close, as though it were written for you, and as though it speaks directly to you, because it does, by God's Spirit. It says, remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, just let that sink in. Having no hope and without God in the world. Now you're ready to remember what happened after that. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. 
He has made us Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Anyone can come to God for salvation. Everyone must come to God through Jesus, the only cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are with us this morning and haven't yet come to you through your son on account of his cross and resurrection. I pray you would grant repentance specifically to those who are with us here who have heard this today and haven't yet come to believe. Lord, it's your work. Your sovereign, gracious hand is so clearly shown in this passage. Help those of us who have experienced that grace to increasingly marvel at what you've done. Help us to further know our hopelessness and helplessness apart from Christ, that we might all the more rejoice in what he has done, in what he has promised, in what he is doing, in what he will come and do someday, hopefully soon. Help us now to sing of him and his name and his supremacy in all things for his glory. Amen.